Chapter Eleven of Storm Over Warlock by Andre Norton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Storm Over Warlock, Chapter Eleven, The Witch. There were patches of light in the inner valley marking the phosphorescent plants, some creeping at ground level, others tall as saplings. On other nights, Shan had welcomed that wan radiance, but now he lay in as relaxed a position as possible, marking each of those potential betrayers as he tried to counterfeit the attitude of sleep and at the same time plan out his route. He had purposely settled in a pool of shadow, the wolverines beside him, and he thought that the bulk of the animal's bodies would cover his own withdrawal when the time came to move. One arm, lying limply across his middle, was in reality clutching to him an intricate arrangement of small hide straps, which he had made by sacrificing most of the remainder of his painfully acquired thongs. The trap must be set in place soon. Now that he had charted a path to the crucial point, avoiding all light plants, Shan was ready to move. The Terran pressed his hand on Taggy's head in the one imperative command the Wolverine was apt to obey, the order to stay where he was. Shan sat up and gave the same voiceless instruction to Togi. Then he inched out of the hollow, a worm's progress to that narrow way along the cliff-top, the path which anyone or anything coming up from that sea-gate on the beach would have to pass in order to witness the shoreline occupied by the half-built outrigger. So much of his plan was based upon luck and guesses, but those were all Shan had. And as he worked at the stretching of his snare, the Terran's heart pounded, and he tensed at every sound out of the night. Having tested all the anchoring of his net, he tugged at a last knot, and then crouched to listen, not only with his ears, but with all his strength of mind and body. Pound of waves, whistle of wind, the sleepy complaint of some bird. A regular splashing. One of the fish in the lagoon? Or what he awaited? The Terran retreated as noiselessly as he had come, heading for the hollow where he had bedded down. He reached there breathless, his heart pumping, his mouth dry as if he had been racing. Taggy stirred and thrust a nose inquiringly against Shan's arm. But the wolverine made no sound, as if he too realized that some menace lay beyond the rim of the valley. Would that other come up the path Shan had trapped? Or had he been wrong? Was the enemy already stalking him from the other beach? The grip of his stunner was slippery in his damp hand. He hated this waiting. The canoe! His work on it had been a careless botching. Better to have the job done right. Why, it was perfectly clear now how he had been mistaken. His whole work plan was wrong. He could see the right way of doing things laid out as clear as a blueprint in his mind. A picture in his mind. Shan stood up, and both wolverines moved uneasily, though neither made a sound. A picture in his mind. But this time he wasn't asleep. He wasn't dreaming a dream to be used for his own defeat. Only, that other could not know this, 
the pressure which had planted the idea of new work to be done in his mind, an idea one part of him accepted as fact, had not taken warning from his move. He was supposed to be under control, the Terran was sure of that. All right, so he would play that part. He must if he would entice the trapper into his trap. He holstered his stunner, walked out into the open, paying no heed now to the patches of light through which he must pass on his way to the path his own feet had already worn to the boat-beach. As he went, Shan tried to counterfeit what he believed would be the gait of a man under compulsion. Now he was on the rim fronting the downslope, fighting against his desire to turn and see for himself if anything had climbed behind. The canoe was all wrong, a bad job which he must make better at once so that in the morning he would be free of this island prison. The pressure of that other's will grew stronger, and the Terran read into that the overconfidence which he believed would be part of the enemy's character. The one who was sending him to destroy his own work had no suspicion that the victim was not entirely malleable ready to be used as he himself would use a knife or a force-axe. Shan strode steadily down slope. With a small spurt of fear he knew that in a way that unseen other was right. The pressure was taking over, even though he was awake this time. The Terran tried to wheel his hand to his stunner, but his fingers fell instead on the hilt of his knife. He drew the blade as panic seethed in his head, chilling him from within. He had underestimated the other's power. And that panic flared into open fight, making him forget his careful plans. Now he must wrench free from this control. The knife was moving to slash a hide-lashing, directed by his hand, but not his will. A soundless gasp. A flash of dismay rocked him, but neither was his gasp nor his dismay. That pressure snapped off. He was free. But the other wasn't. Knife still in fist, Shan turned and ran upslope, his torch in his other hand. He could see a shape now writhing, fighting, outlined against a light bush and fearing that the stranger might win free and disappear, the Terran spotlighted the captive in the beam, reckless of throg or enemy reinforcements. The other crouched, plainly startled by the sudden burst of light. Shan stopped abruptly. He had not really built up any mental picture of what he had expected to find in his snare, but this prisoner was as weirdly alien to him as a throg. The light on the torch was reflected off a skin which glittered as if scaled, glittered with the brilliance of jewels, in bands and coils of color, spreading from the throat down the chest, spiraling about upper arms, around waist and thighs, as if the stranger wore a treasure-house of gems as part of a living body. Except for those patterned loops, coils and bands, the body had no clothing though a belt about the slender middle supported a pair of pouches and some odd implements held in loops. Roughly, the figure was more humanoid than the throgs. The upper limbs were not too unlike Shan's arms, 
though the hands had four digits of equal length instead of five. But the features were non-human, closer to Saurian in contour. It had large eyes, blazing yellow in the dazzle of the flash, with vertical slits of green for pupils. A nose united with the jaw to make a snout, and above the domed forehead a sharp V-point of raised spiky growth extended back and down until behind the shoulder-blades it widened and expanded to resemble a pair of wings. The captive no longer struggled, but sat quietly in the tangle of the snare Shan had set, watching the Terran steadily as if there were no difficulty in seeing through the brilliance of the beam to the man who held it. And, oddly enough, Shan experienced no repulsion toward its reptilian appearance as he had upon first sighting the beetle throg. On impulse he put down his torch on a rock and walked into the light to face squarely the thing out of the sea. Still eyeing Shan, the captive raised one limb and gave an absent-minded tug to the belt it wore. Shan, noting that gesture, was struck by a wild surmise leading him to study the prisoner more narrowly. Allowing for the alien structure of bone, the non-human skin, this creature was delicate, graceful, in its way beautiful, with a fragility of limb which backed up his suspicions. Moved by no pressure from the other, but by his own will and sense of fitness, Shan stooped to cut the control line of his snare. The captive continued to watch as Shan sheathed his blade and then held out his hand. Yellow eyes, never blinking since his initial appearance, regarded him, not with any trace of fear or dismay, but with a calm measurement which was curiosity based upon a strong belief in its own superiority. He did not know how he knew, but Shan was certain that the creature out of the sea was still entirely confident that it made no fight because it did not conceive of any possible danger from him. And again, oddly enough, he was not irritated by this unconscious arrogance. Rather, he was intrigued and amused. Friends? Shan used the basic galactic speech devised by Survey and the Free Traders, semantics which depended upon the proper inflection of voice and tone to project meaning when the words were foreign. The other made no sound, and the Terran began to wonder if his captive had any audible form of speech. He withdrew a step or two, then pulled at the snare, drawing the cords away from the creature's slender ankles. Rolling the thongs into a ball, he tossed the crude net back over his shoulder. Friends he repeated again, showing his empty hands, trying to give that one word the proper inflection, hoping the other could read his peaceful intent in his features, if not by his speech. In one lithe, flowing movement the alien arose. Fully erect, the Warlockian had a frail appearance. Shan, for his breed, was not tall, but the native was still smaller, not more than five feet, that stiff V of head-crest just topping Shan's shoulder. Whether any of those fittings at its belt could be a weapon, the Terran had no way of telling. However, the other made no move to draw any of them. Instead, one of the four-digit hands came up. 
Shan felt the feather touch of strange fingertips on his chin, across his lips, up his cheek, to at last press firmly on his forehead at a spot just between the eyebrows. What followed was a communication of a sort, not in words or in any describable flow of thoughts. There was no feeling of enmity, at least nothing strong enough to be called that. Curiosity, yes, and then a growing doubt, not of the Terran himself, but of the other's preconceived ideas concerning him. Shan was other than the native had judged him, and the stranger was disturbed, that self-confidence a little ruffled. And also Shan was right in his guess. He smiled, his amusement growing, not aimed at his companion on this cliff-top, but at himself. For he was dealing with a woman, a very young woman, and someone as fully feminine in her way as any human girl could be. "'Friends?' he asked for the third time. But the other still exuded a wariness, a wariness mixed with surprise. And the tenuous message which passed between them then astounded Shan. To this Warlockian out of the night he was not following the proper pattern of male behavior at all. He should have been in awe of the other merely because of her sex. A diffidence, rather than an assumption of equality, should have colored his response, judged by her standards. At first he caught a flash of anger at this preposterous attitude of his. Then her curiosity won, but there was still no reply to his question. The fingertips no longer made contact between them. Stepping back, her hands now reached for one of the pouches at her belt. Shan watched that movement carefully. And because he did not trust her too far, he whistled. Her head came up. She might be dumb, but plainly she was not deaf. And she gazed down into the hollow as the wolverines answered his summons with growls. Her profile reminded Shan of something for an instant but it should have been golden-yellow instead of silver with two jeweled patterns ringing the snout. Yes, that small plaque he had seen in the cabin of one of the ship's officers. A very old Terran legend. Dragon, the officer had named the creature. Only that one had possessed a serpent's body, a lizard's legs, and wings. Shan gave a sudden start, aware his thoughts had made him careless. Or had she in some way led him into that by-path of memory for her own purposes? Because now she held some object in the curve of her curled fingers, regarding him with those unblinking yellow eyes. 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 Shan dimly heard the alarm cry of the wolverines. He tried to snap-draw his stunner, but it was too late. There was a haze about him hiding the rocks, the island valley with its radiant plants, the night sky, the bright beam of the torch. Now he moved through that haze as one walks through a dream approaching nightmare, striding with an effort as if wading through a deterring flood. Sound, sight, one after another, those senses were taken from him. Desperately, Shan held to one thing his own sense of identity. He was Shan Lan Ti, 
Terran breed, out of Tyr, of the Survey Service. Some part of him repeated those facts with vast urgency against an almost overwhelming force which strove to defeat that awareness of self, making him nothing but a tool, or a weapon, for another's use. The Terran fought, soundlessly but fiercely, on a battleground which was within him, knowing in a detached way that his body obeyed another's commands. "'I am Shan!' he cried without audible speech. "'I am myself. I have two hands, two legs. I think for myself. I am a man!' And to that came an answer of sorts, a blow of will striking at his resistance a will which struggled to drown him before ebbing, leaving behind it a faint suggestion of bewilderment, of a dawn of concern. "'I am a man!' he hurled that assertion as he might have thrust deep with one of the crude spears he had used against the throgs. For against what he faced now his weapons were as crude as spears fronting blasters. "'I am Shanlantee!' Terran! Man! Those were facts. No haze could sweep them from his mind or take away that heritage. And again there was the lightning of the pressure, the slight recoil, which could only be a prelude to another assault upon his last stronghold. He clutched his three facts to him as a shield, groping for others which might have afforded a weapon of rebuttal. Dreams! These Warlockians dealt in and through dreams. And the opposite of dreams are facts. His name, his breed, his sex, these were facts. And Warlock itself was a fact. The earth under his boots was a fact. The water which washed around the island was a fact. The air he breathed was a fact. Flesh, blood, bones, facts, all of them. Now he was a struggling identity imprisoned in a rebel body. But that body was real. He tried to feel it. Blood pumped from his heart, his lungs filled and emptied. He struggled to feel those processes. With a terrifying shock, the envelope which held him vanished. Shan was choking, struggling in water. He flailed out with his arms, kicked his legs. One hand grated painfully against stone. Hardly knowing what he did, but fighting for his life, Shan caught at that rock and drew his head out of the water. Coughing and gasping, half-drowned, he was weak with the panic of his close brush with death. For a long moment he could only cling to the rock which had saved him, wretched and dazed, as the water washed about his body, a current tugging at his trailing legs. There was a light of sort here, patches of green which glowed with the same subdued light as the bushes of the outer world, for he was no longer under the night sky. A rock roof was but inches over his head. He must be in some cave or tunnel under the surface of the sea. Again a gust of panic shook him as he felt trapped. The water continued to pull at Shan, and in his weakened condition it was a temptation to yield to that pull. The more he fought it, the more he was exhausted. 
At last the Terran turned on his back, trying to float with the stream, sure he could no longer battle it. Luckily, those few inches of space above the surface of the water continued, and he had air to breathe. But the fear of that ending, of being swept under the surface, chewed at his nerves. And his bodily danger burned away the last of the spell which had held him, brought him into this place, wherever it might be. Was it only his heightened imagination, or had the current grown swifter? Shan tried to gauge the speed of his passage by the way the patches of green light slipped by. Now he turned and began to swim slowly, feeling as if his arms were leaden weights, his ribs a cage to bind his aching lungs. Another patch of light, larger, spreading across the roof overhead. Then he was out out of the tunnel into a cavern so vast that its arching roof was like a sky-dome far above his head. But here the patches of light were brighter, and they were arranged in odd groups which had a familiar look to them. Only, better than freedom overhead, there was a shore not too distant. Shan swam for that haven, summoning up the last rags of his strength, knowing that if he could not reach it very soon he was finished. Somehow he made it and lay gasping, his cheek resting on sand finer than any of the outer world, his fingers digging into it for purchase to drag his body on. But when he collapsed, his legs were still awash in water. No footfall could be heard on that sand, but he knew that he was no longer alone. He braced his hands with painful effort, levered up his body. Somehow he made it to his knees but he could not stand. Instead, he half stumbled back, so that he faced them from a sitting position. Them. There were three of them. The dragon-headed ones with their slender, jewel-set bodies glittering, even in this subdued light. Their yellow eyes fastened on him with a remoteness which did not approach any human emotion, save perhaps that of a cold and limited wonder. But behind them came a fourth, one he knew by the patterns on her body. Shan clasped his hands about his knees to still the trembling of his body, and eyed them back with all the defiance he could muster. Nor did he doubt that he had been brought here, his body as captive to their will as had been that of their spy or messenger in his crude snare on the island. "'Well, you have me,' he said hoarsely. Now what?" His words boomed weirdly out over the water, were echoed from the dim outer reaches of the cavern. There was no answer. They merely stood watching him. Shan stiffened, determined to hold to his defiance and to that identity which he now knew was his weapon against the powers they used. The one who had somehow drawn him there moved at last circling around the other three with a suggestion of diffidence in her manner. Shan jerked back his head as her hand stretched to touch his face. And then, guessing that she sought her peculiar form of communication, he submitted to her fingertips, though now his skin crawled under that light but firm pressure, and he shrank from the contact. There were no sensations this time. To his amazement, a concrete inquiry shaped itself in his brain, 
as clear as if the question had been asked aloud. "'Who are you?' "'Shan,' he began vocally, and then turned words into thoughts. "'Shan Lan-Ti, Terran, Man.' He made his answer the same which had kept him from succumbing to their complete domination. "'Name, Shan Lan-Ti, Man, yes.' The other accepted those. Terran? That was a question. Did these people have any notion of space travel? Could they understand the concept of another world holding intelligent beings? I come from another world. He tried to make a clean-cut picture in his mind, a globe in space, a ship blasting free. Look. The finger still rested between his eyebrows, but with her other hand the Warlockian was pointing up to the dome of the cavern. Shan followed her order. He studied those patches of light which had seemed so vaguely familiar at his first sighting, studying them closely to know them for what they were. A star map! A map of the heavens as they could be seen from the outer crust of Warlock! "'Yes, I come from the stars,' he answered, booming with his voice. The fingers dropped from his forehead, the scaled head swung around to exchange glances, which were perhaps some unheard communication with the other three. Then the hand was extended again. Come! Fingers fell from his head to his right wrist, closing there with surprising strength, and some of that strength together with a new energy flowed from them into him so that he found and kept his feet as the other drew him up. End of chapter 11